If you would, please join me in taking out your Bibles and turning to Acts chapter 6. We're going to pick up where we left off from two weeks ago. As we turn to God's Word, let's turn to Him once again in prayer. Please join me. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank You that You are with us now through Your Word and by Your Spirit. Father, we pray that your word and spirit would have their way with your gathered people. Would you open our eyes to see, our ears to hear, our minds to know, our hearts to embrace the truth of who you are and what you have done for your people and what you call your people to do. Indeed, strengthen our hands and feet to follow Jesus, we pray in his name. Amen. Well, today is number 19 in our series, Looking Back at Our History and Moving Forward in Our Mission. It may be number 19, but it's actually the first of two sermons on the life and death of Stephen. Uh, Today, we're looking at his life, and next uh, Sunday, Lord willing, uh, we will look at his death. Now, Acts can be thought of as people. Think of the first half of Acts, Peter, and the second half as Paul and, and others, and Also places, uh, the missionary journeys that we will see. We've already been in Jerusalem. We'll be elsewhere. Luke here, notice the author of Acts, provides a lengthy account of Stephen's brief ministry. A lengthy account of a very brief ministry. And therefore, his story is, is significant. Why? Why would the story of Stephen be significant? Well, first of all, as Stan has already mentioned, he's the first recorded martyr of the early church that we we know of. Now, we've seen the apostles warned, we've seen them jailed and beaten, and now with Stephen, we're going to see followers of Jesus killed. And then another significant fact is that after his death, the persecution breaks out against Christians. And interestingly, as we will see in the persecution, the gospel spreads out from Jerusalem. And third, uh, why is Stephen significant? Well, we are introduced to the most important man in the New Testament apart from Jesus. That is Saul, the Pharisee, Paul, the Apostle. Remember, when we hear the title, the book of Acts, it reminds us that at its heart, Christianity is about what God does, what God has done in history and what he continues to do now. The acts of the exalted Christ by the Holy Spirit in the church, founded by him through the apostles. We look back and see what God has done in Jesus. We look ahead as God, what God will do now through the Spirit. Now, I, I think I already know the answer to this question, but we need to ask it. Who of you enjoys, likes, looks forward to conflict? All right? Who looks forward to conflict? Who of us does? You know, and there's usually two responses to conflict, uh, maybe three. What happens in conflict? You, 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 you fight. You attack. That's one response. Or there's, there's flight. There's escape. There's fight, 
or flight, but lately I've been learning that there's another typical response, and that is freeze. You don't even know whether to run or stay and fight. You, you freeze. Here we're beginning to see the conflict between Christianity and every other religion, and here we're going to see it breaking out, not as, a, as a, just a, a subset of Judaism, but as an independent religion. We see the conflict now between Christianity and Judaism. Because both, if you ask them, what do you believe? They can't both be true. That's why this pluralistic day that we live in where people are just used to saying, well, all roads lead to God. Yeah, it'll work out in the end. That's a dangerous place to be. Christianity and other religions can't both be true. And we're going to see that more and more in Acts. Jesus, of course, separates people, the believing and the unbelieving. Stephen here is going to show us how to stand and fight. That's his response, to fight in a way that honors God. He will demonstrate how to fight, as it were, like a man, like a man under the influence, a man under the influence of the Holy Spirit, a man under the influence of the life-dominating gospel. We're in a battle a clash of worldviews. And at the center of that, whether it's Stephen here in the first century or us now, at the center of that battle is a person and an object, Jesus and his cross. You see, Jesus, we've seen the response in the Gospel of Mark. We've seen the response in, in Acts. People either love him or they hate him. And the cross, as we've seen, either humbles you or it hardens you. Today we're going to look at Stephen, a man who found himself in the middle of a personal conflict. But that personal conflict was actually just a subset of a larger cosmic battle. We're going to take a look at the man, his message, and his mission. Join with me now as I read verses six through, excuse me, verses eight through fifteen of Acts six. And Stephen full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Sicilia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Now remember, Stephen was a man of outstanding character. Earlier in chapter 6, when we we saw a few weeks ago, that Stephen was a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Remember, seven men were chosen, men of exemplary character and insight, who were godly and wise. You know, faith, 
Every Christian has faith, but Stephen was shown to be exceptional to the extent which he was willing to trust God to take him at his word and to risk all for Christ's sake. You see, Stephen saw, as we will see, certain implications in what the Bible taught and what Christ did, and he was willing to risk it all for the truth of those implications. Now, some of you all may be familiar with missionaries, missionaries who leave their home and go to proclaim Christ. And if you read missionary biographies, and if you don't have time, and if you just read quotes, you see they were willing to risk it all for the call that Jesus had upon them. You, you, you read of men like Jim Elliott, who we'll look at more next week, of, of, down in Ecuador in 1956, losing his life along with other men as they reached out to the Alka Indians. Indians. You think of, of um, C.T. Studd, who, who had some great um, uh, quotes that are remembered to this day of, of risking it all. Uh, like he would say, only one life will soon be passed, only one Only what's done for Christ will last. And then this one, if Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice could be too great for me to make for him. I mean, we see that and we will see that in Stephen. Stephen, as you saw and heard, was full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. He's full of it. He's full of spirit and wisdom of faith and the Holy Spirit. And then in verse 8, we heard he is full of what? Grace and power. Grace and power. Interestingly, it's a unique blended balance, isn't it? Of two, what would seem to be possibly opposites. Grace, compassionate, sensitive, peaceful. Power, forceful, bold, forthright and direct. Stephen has the spirit of Christ. And how is Christ described in scripture? As both a lion and a lamb. You see, my friends, only the gospel can produce what we see in Stephen, a humble boldness and a bold humility. Why? Because if we are saved by our works, we can either be bold, but not humble if we're living up to our standards, or we can be humble, but not bold if we have been failing at our standards. But the gospel tells us that we are helpless sinners creating a humility that doesn't go away, but also that we are completely accepted and loved in Christ, creating a boldness that does not go away. You see, the gospel thus produces in you and me this combination that we see in Stephen of boldness and power. We see that in Stephen. We'll see it, how it works itself out. How about you? We had a great discussion in our adult Sunday school class today about um, Pilgrim's Progress, Christian in the Valley of Humiliation, where a Christian could recognize that he was more sinful than than the others knew, but yet he was more loved and more forgiven than he could ever hope for in Christ. It produces humble boldness or bold humility. Ask yourself, do I have that? Is that working itself out in my life? Well, despite this outstanding character, Stephen's actions were opposed. There arose a hostile antagonism. And what has Stephen been doing? He's been preaching, he's been teaching, he's been doing great works. What's he accused of doing? Speaking against God's house, the temple, and against his word, his law. 
You see, we're beginning to see that where the gospel goes, trouble goes, trouble follows. The preaching of the gospel, the preaching of life through Jesus will be opposed. Now, did you hear in those verses that were read that they didn't win the argument? Stephen had a wisdom and ability to basically refute all of their arguments against him. So what happens in that case? Opponents go after someone, right, with mud, with what's called an ad hominem argument against the man. We're, we're not going to argue against his, what he's saying because we can't refute it, but what we're going to have to do is say things about him, go after his character. Well, again, it's through false accusations. It's against lies. Mud here is a suitable substitute for debate. Now, does that sound familiar or what? Could you imagine at a political debate from now on, the moderator said, no ad hominem arguments, only policy? Well, what would that be like? It'd be refreshing and a change. You see, that kind of mudslinging goes way back. We see it here in the early chapters of Acts. But you see, more is going on than just some kind of simple disagreement. It, here is the idea of there is a big struggle against forces beyond Stephen and the council. So we see already that God is using his people to proclaim a message, and not so much a defense, but a proclamation, as we will see what Stephen does, about who God is and what he has done. Uh, we are not going to read all of chapter 7, 1 through 53. That would just take uh, too long, and I hope in preparation for today you read that. But this is the longest speech in Acts. You th think about that. Peter spoke, Paul will speak, and yet Luke chose to include this speech of Stephen. This is the longest speech. Luke must have had a purpose in including it. Let's uh, take a look at the message. The message. Again, Stephen's not so much defending himself as he's just going to rehearse the history of God's people. It's a summary, it's a who's who in Israel's history. He's accused of preaching rebellion against the religion of Israel, and his response is a long recounting of the nation's history. Instead of defending himself, what does he do? He rehearses history. He uses scripture, he uses the history of Israel to demonstrate that he is not against either the temple nor the law. He provides an overview of Israel's history from Abraham to Solomon. And here's a rough, brief, quick outline of his message. Verses 2 through 8, he brings up the age of the patriarchs, Abraham's call to leave his homeland and settle in a new country. From verses 9 through 19 is the time of the exodus showing how the Lord used Joseph to rescue his people. And then in verses 20 through 43 are the wilderness wanderings. Moses leading God's people out of Egypt toward the promised land. And then in verses 44 through 50, he starts in on a history of the tabernacle and the temple from the time of Moses to the time of David and Solomon. Now, what, what would be the bottom line? Why would um, Stephen recount all of this 
history. What is he trying to show by doing that? He's trying to show this, that the activity of God isn't confined or restricted to the geographical land of Israel. Because you see, in the history of Israel, God has pledged himself in a solemn covenant to be their God and that they would be his people. And he would say over and over again, wherever you go, I will be with you. He calls Abraham to go. He ends up with his people in Egypt for 400 years. He's with his people. He calls his people out of Egypt. He's with them in the wilderness. The promised land is a land of promise and blessing. But the presence of God with his people is a blessing as well. God has pledged himself to his people to be with them wherever they are. Now we need to do, we need to skip over now to verse 51. And again, if you haven't already done this, maybe this afternoon, just read through this wonderful history that Stephen presents. So I'll back up at uh, verse 49, where he's quoting one of the prophets, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? So that's the, that's the conclusion of his history. But now, as it were, he jumps into the present and notice the pronoun shift. Instead of they, 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 look at verse 51. You. You, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did not your fathers persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who have received the law as delivered by angels. And did not keep it. Wow, a stunning climax to this speech, to this narration of Israel's history. Now, he's not so much defending as he's prosecuting. He's going for, from a defense attorney, as it were, to a, a prosecutor. As the prophets were often uh, seen as the prosecutors, covenant uh, prosecutors against God's rebellious people. You see, Stephen's point in this summary, as it looks back over what he's also said, is this, God has a record of being gracious to his people. Did you hear that over and over and over again? God is gracious to his people. And yet God's people also have a record. They have a record of being stubborn and rebellious. God is gracious, God's people are stubborn and rebellious. You see, in re rehearsing this history, he reminds them that God called them in Abraham, preserved them through Joseph, delivered them through Moses, established them as a nation, and, and gave them a king in David. And he came to dwell in their midst, first in the tabernacle and then in Solomon's temple. 
Do you see the pattern? God is gracious and God's people are stubborn and rebellious. There's a rejection of God's care. Before we go on, let's just stop and think for ourselves about our own lives. God is gracious. God is faithful. God is kind and merciful. And what are we? Did you know that there's an unnamed central character in Stephen's speech? Who is that unnamed central character? Well, of course, it's Jesus Christ. Because what Stephen was really doing was preaching Christ as the one in whom all that the Old Testament foretold and foreshadowed is fulfilled, especially the temple and especially the law. You see, in Jesus' ministry, he taught that the temple and the law would be superseded and find their God-intended fulfillment in him. You know, even Solomon knew that God couldn't be contained in this building that was built. And Jesus is speaking of a new temple where God's presence is made known fully and finally, in himself. And then, of course, Jesus did not come to abolish the law, right? But to fulfill it. The law and the temple, the two things that they are saying, Stephen is is blaspheming. It's all pointing to Jesus. And Jesus has fulfilled what the temple and the law prefigured. Jesus was the replacement of the temple and the fulfillment of the law. Now, the fact that Stephen, the man, proclaimed a message revealed that he was a man on a mission. He had been given a mission and was carrying it out. And what is that mission? What is that mission? Well, remember in verse 8 of chapter 1, you will be my witnesses. You will be my witnesses. Now, kids, help me out. Help me out with some verbs, English, will be. Does that sound like it's, it's a possibility or, or not? If you say something will be, what does that mean? Right. It is. You, you are. There is no choice. You, you will be my witnesses. Remember, in John 20, Jesus says, peace be with you. Peace be with you. And he immediately said, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. You've got peace in me. And because of that, and in view of that, I'm going to send you out to announce my peace to others. You will be my witnesses. And and what does it mean to be a witness? Well, it means a lot of things, but I think in here, in our text, at least three things. A, A witness proclaims the truth. And that's what Stephen's doing, the content. He's proclaiming the scriptures. And he's proclaiming the content in a particular context, in his time and place. He's proclaiming the truth about who God is and who we are. 
who God is and what his people have done. He's proclaiming the truth about what God has done and what God will do. So a witness proclaims the truth. A a witness also presents themselves. Stephen is presenting himself. Uh, He's present. He's, He's not absent. Now, it's interesting. Paul does write letters to the churches, but as often as he can, he wants to be there personally with them, and he had been. He... The, the witness doesn't witness by video teleconference call. The witness witnesses, as it were, face-to-face, in person. And thirdly, the witness perseveres. They persevere despite opposition from the world, the flesh, and the devil. Um, that's a long speech. Um, can you imagine doing what Stephen did? Well, of course you can imagine it because... That's one of the things we do. We, we tell the story of God. We tell the story of sin. We tell the story of God's um, rescue from sin through Jesus Christ, his person and his work. But Stephen gave a long speech. It, it's not drive-by discipleship. It's not bumper sticker Christianity. Stephen went face to face and witnessed from the scriptures, that was his content in the context of where he was before the council. Uh, was Stephen tempted to quit? Was he, attempt, was he tempted to give up, assuming he continued to face opposition? I've often been reminded that you only persevere when you get to the point of wanting to quit. A witness proclaims the truth. A witness presents Themselves, a witness perseveres, perseveres in the faith. Well, again, who of us likes conflict? Who of us likes disagreement? And yet, as Christians, what do we have in the middle of conflict, in the, in the midst of a fight? We have, of course, grace and peace. We have the grace of God and the peace of God in the midst of a fight. And as we will see, this is a fight to the death. But I want us to also see it's a fight from the death. From the death of Jesus. You see, my friends, our hope to persevere, our hope to stand in front and communicate the truth of the gospel, our hope in the fight It's not in our skill, our ability, our promises. Our hope is in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. You see, my friends, what Stephen was doing was following Jesus. I mean, you can see a whole lot of parallels in in before the council. He's following Jesus. And you know what? That's what Christians are doing too. We are following Jesus. Let's all take a look at Jesus right now. And what do we see? We see a man who proclaimed the truth about God, about us, and about the way to be reconciled. And Jesus not only proclaimed the truth, he presented himself. Have you thought about that? He is not just proclaiming the truth. He is manifesting the truth. He is, as we know, the word in 
the flesh. He is God with us, Emmanuel. And then what else do we see when we look at Jesus? We see that he persevered to the end, right? And I think from that perseverance we see in Jesus, as we see in Philippians 2, of becoming obedient even to death on a cross. I think we can all quit on Jesus when he quits on us. Jesus, the the church can quit on Jesus when he quits on the church. But if there's anything that we have been seeing is Jesus is faithful. Scripture declares over and over and over again that just as we saw in the Old Testament of God not quitting on his people, we see in Scripture from the witness of Scripture and the testimony of the Holy Spirit, we see Jesus does not and will not quit on us. That's why Stephen, as we will see next week, could look death in the face and find a joy and a peace in the midst of that suffering because he was looking to Jesus. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, the fact that there is a lengthy section in Acts of the brief ministry of Stephen gets our attention. And so, Father, we pray that just as Stephen rehearsed your faithfulness to your people and as he rehearsed the stubbornness and resistance and rebellion of your people, that we also, Father, would recognize your faithfulness and recognize our unfaithfulness. And in doing so, Father, I pray that you would help all of us to grow in our love for the one who proclaimed the truth, who presented himself, and who persevered to the end to the accomplishment of his mission through his life and death and resurrection. Oh, Father, in the midst of so many voices calling out for our attention, help us to keep our eyes fixed on Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.